It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. happy Wednesday. It's definitely Wednesday today because <laughs> I know I was on the air last night and I thought it was Wednesday, but you know how it goes and it's the holiday season. It's busy. Uh, not a great holiday season for Sean Williams. And if you recognize that name, that's a good thing. Uh, Sean Williams is the fella who's accused, well, it's thought, Charges are pending at this point, but uh, it's thought that he raped 52 women while they were unconscious and filmed it because police found a hard drive in his vehicle with all of that evidence. But all these other crimes they also have charged him with, uh, this is an elusive fella. And you'll notice all the owies because these were likely caused the last time he was uh, caught while he'd been 34 days on the run. This is the Tennessee fella uh, who's in a heap of trouble. And tomorrow he's going to face a judge over, I guess, the last escape because there's been three alleged attempted escapes so far. Uh, look at all these different looks, too. No wonder he's good at escaping. He, he's just a chameleon. Anyway, uh, the news came in today. It was a bit of a shocker. He tried to kill himself. Now, I don't know how because they said he was on constant watch. I mean, he is a he's very elusive. But they said it was so bad um, they had to send him to the hospital. Okay, now I think I know where this is going. And I wonder if you're going to follow me here. Was it really a suicide attempt? Or was this an attempt to get to a hospital? Because hospitals are so much easier to escape from. Am I right? I'm going to go into all of that. I'm going to give you the details in just a hot minute. I'm also going to tell you something that I need you to hold on to something tight. And if you don't have something near, then just get a big glass of whiskey because that might have the same effect. I kind of had to scrape myself off the ledge uh, when two teenagers were arrested in Las Vegas after having filmed themselves uh, ramming a cyclist from behind, senior citizen out for a morning bike ride in Vegas, laughing the whole time on video while ramming the cyclist. The cyclist died. He was the second cyclist that had been rammed that day. First one lived. Thank God. As if that didn't curdle your milk enough, um, these two kids, and I call them kids because they're under 18, did this in court, snickering, laughing, smiling. Look, oh, look where we are. We'll get off. Well, well you, no, because it's murder. And <clears throat> you're charged as adults. And life, no parole is a big possibility. What you don't see in this video right here was what the victim's grieving widow and daughter saw in court, and that was the bird, a couple times. They said that these two teenagers flipped them off in court a couple times. Well, you can imagine that would garner some headlines, understandably. So, you ready for that drink? Um, one of the lawyers on the case has asked the judge to toss the case out, toss out the charges, because there have been too many headlines. Do what now? This guy right here. 
this lawyer with his client laughing in the courtroom. Uh, he also says he's getting death threats because of this picture. This is the Las Vegas Review Journal that took this shot. This was just a couple hours, he says, before the gavel came down on the case. But this went on in court, this kind of kibitzing. Did I say that the widow and the daughter were in the courtroom? I'm getting into all of that. I'm going to tell you what else he said to the judge, about why they should throw the case out, and then I'm going to tell you what the judge said. That one you need to wait for, and you're not going to need a drink for that one. Um, oh, unless you want to cheers. Okay, so then uh, the voice from hell. And when I say that, I actually mean it. I mean the voice from hell. I don't mean like just a cute expression. I mean the voice from hell. Because I believe John Wayne Gacy, if there's a heaven and a hell, is burning in hell 30 years after his execution. This is the fellow that dressed as a clown and was a serial killer. 33 men and boys found dead, many of them buried in his own basement. So the voice from hell is his voice. He was recorded by his lawyer as they prepped for his trial. And those tapes were kept quiet for decades until now. Because that lawyer gave those tapes to his son. And that son has a podcast and is releasing John Wayne Gacy's explanations for what he did. Wait until you... Well, you know what? How about this one? How, how about this little clip? John Wayne Gacy defending killing all those people. Have a listen. you feel that their deaths were their fault? Yes. There's not one of them that didn't, didn't die that I'm aware of that didn't die through their own hands or through their own wrongdoing. Wow. Just Wow. You're going to hear more of those tapes tonight, as well as the podcaster lawyer who is releasing them. He happens to be the son of the lawyer, so he's directly connected to the case. All that just ahead. Let's start here, though. When somebody who's allegedly done a lot of bad stuff for a long time finally gets caught, but then somehow escapes and gets caught again, that's when the walls tend to start closing in. And often desperate times call for desperate measures. Like Sean Williams. According to the jailers, he tried to kill himself in his jail cell last night, just before the court hearing scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, they say injured himself so badly, he was sent to the hospital. And before I go on, the reminder, he is the Tennessee man that police say raped at least 52 unconscious women and filmed himself doing it. And they have the actual evidence. Uh, he somehow escaped from a prison van en route to a courthouse and was on the run for a month until he was caught again and jailed again. And tonight he is, quote, back under heavy observation and security, end quote. The details are kind of scarce on this one, but clearly he didn't come too close to succeeding in suicide. And frankly, I gotta be honest with you, I am not so sure that he tried to kill himself in his cell, or if he was looking at a very clever way to get a quick trip to the hospital because escaping from a hospital is a hell of a lot easier than, say, escaping from a jail. He's still due in federal court tomorrow, for that arraignment on the October escape from the jail van. Judge is also going to take up Sean Williams' court-appointed attorney's request to be taken off the case. I don't want to do this. I'm out. I quit. I want to read you a statement um, that David Jolly gave us. He's from the U.S. Marshals for the Eastern District of Tennessee. He gave us this exclusively just a couple hours ago. Sean Williams was released today and will appear in front of a U.S. magistrate judge tomorrow afternoon in Greenville, Tennessee. 
When he says released, he means delivered, because he says he was delivered yesterday afternoon via the U.S. Marshals Service airlift to awaiting Eastern District of Tennessee Deputy U.S. Marshals who transported him to one of the local jails who we have an intergovernmental agreement with to house pre-trial detainees. About an hour and a half after arrival, Williams attempted to harm himself. He was transported to a hospital and treated and released. He remains under heavy observation and security as he awaits trial on his charges. Joining me now, News Nation national correspondent Alex Capriello. Okay, so Alex, what do we know about the nature of Sean Williams' injuries? Well, unfortunately, we're still just trying to piece this whole thing together, gathering as much information as possible from the U.S. Marshals. They're the ones, the only ones, who can actually release this type of information. I called the jail itself, spoke to the jail administrator, the captain. They're not budging. Really, this has to come from the U.S. Marshals. So they have given us a few details, one of which is that he sustained what they're calling a puncture-type wound. I'm not entirely sure what that means, if that's uh, you know akin to a stabbing, but that's what they're calling it. They say that uh, the administrators were able to rush into that jail cell. They were able to stabilize him and take him to a hospital. He wasn't in there for very long, released uh, just this afternoon. He's back in jail now. And as for the actual weapon that he used on himself, that much is not clear. The U.S. Marshals say they're still investigating. So he is a slippery little fella. Um, This is what, escape attempt number, what, three, allegedly? Yeah, that's right. The first one happened uh, earlier this year. It was an attempted escape. It wasn't very successful. He was able to uh, be apprehended outside that Washington County detention facility. The second one, actually, is the one that we all remember, right? That was the big chase uh, beginning in October. Uh, As you mentioned, about 34 days later, 700 miles south from where he originally escaped, he was apprehended uh, in uh, just outside of Tampa, Florida. In that case, he actually kicked out the window of his transport van and fled on foot. Uh, And he made it a heck of a long way before getting caught. 34 days. I mean, that was that was something else. He was captured in Pinellas County, the amazing um, 7-Eleven employee who said, "Mm, I recognize that guy. And he called him in and they caught him. And then it was a bit of an aggressive arrest. Obviously, the dogs were involved, a canine. And so he got a bit banged up. So he has been you mentioned he's been in U.S. Marshal custody all this time. I didn't realize that. I thought that the U.S. Marshals were part of the arrest, the capture. And then he went into the appropriate jurisdiction. But he's actually been with the U.S. Marshals ever since that Pinellas County capture. Right. And I think that's for a number of reasons. The first one being what you just mentioned, that interstate uh, escape in which he had to be corralled and captured and brought back into custody. But then on top of that, he's also a prominent figure in two different federal civil cases uh, accusing the Johnson City Police Department in Johnson City Tennessee of actually covering up some of his sex crimes. Those are trials that haven't even happened yet that are still under investigation. Johnson City PD and Johnson City itself have denied those claims. But even still, there's multiple trials and multiple cases that surround Sean Williams right now. So the the marshals don't like this kind of thing. Um, They they pride themselves on being pretty good at what they do, and they do not like it when um, inmates try to escape. Are we hearing much about sort of this this notion of what they think of this particular inmate? Yeah, it's it's hasn't slipped the minds of the U.S. Marshals that this is a problematic detainee, uh, a defendant that really is quite slippery in your own words. Back when he first escaped, David Jolly, that's the U.S. Marshal in eastern Tennessee, said that that 
prison transport escape was so rare that it actually uh, required quite a bit of skill to evade capture for 34 days. But now back to today and what we're seeing now, uh, Jolly believes that this is just another case of him just trying to slip out of uh, the punishment that he might face. He released this statement to us saying, Williams is a cunning and very dangerous individual who has attempted to escape escaped from transport officers, and now attempted suicide, all to avoid facing his charges. So in his eyes, yes, indeed, this is just another attempt to escape. Uh, If he wasn't under intense scrutiny before, you better believe he is going to be now. Jolly says he's going to be under significant guard presence while he awaits those hearings, one of which is tomorrow, and then, of course, a trial later on. So the tomorrow thing, you know, being arraigned for the October escape, uh, I'm interested in that. But I'm also really interested in the lawyer trying to get off the case. What do we know about that? Yeah, this would be the second lawyer that would uh, try to get out of representing Sean Williams. Obviously, he's got a lot of baggage with him, a very difficult case to have to handle. Uh, So that is something that's going to be heard tomorrow in front of a judge, Uh, not to mention some of the other child pornography crimes that he's accused of. That hearing is scheduled for in front of a judge tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Obviously, if he tried to be in the hospital at that point, it didn't work. He's out. He's stabilized. He's going to be in court tomorrow. Cheapers, creepers. All right, Alex Capriello, good work. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, I want to continue with this story because after slipping out of the jail van back in October, uh, we still haven't really learned how that happened. Like, I'm waiting on that story too, right? Excuse me? (laughs) It's a little transport. It's like one of those transit vans, right? Small, two guards in there. Somehow he gets out and they don't know. They show up at the courthouse. Where's the inmate? I don't know. So once we get those details, that'll be good. But in the meantime... um, He lived life as a fugitive until that eagle-eyed manager at 7-Eleven recognized him in Florida, Pinellas County. She talked about the moment right here on this show the night it happened. Have a listen. I saw a photo of him earlier in the day from a deputy, but it was blurry. So when he walks in, I asked my coworker, I was like, is that him? And he was like, I don't think so. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I just felt weird about it. So then I was scrolling through Facebook and a photo of him popped up, a better one, and his tattoo on his arm. And I recognized the tattoo. So that's when I called police and told them, I was like, he was in my store. If William's so-called suicide attempt was a ruse to get out of lockup, he would not be the first to try it. Remember Caitlin Armstrong? She complained of a jailhouse injury, and she got herself an off-site medical appointment. And once she was at that medical appointment, she used the injury um, to get permission to not have her legs restrained. And then when she saw her chance, boom, she took off. Briefly. She was caught. And then she had to stand trial for murder and lost. There was also the D.C. manhunt for uh, murder suspect Christopher Hines. If you remember this one, he complained about ankle pain and was taken to the George Washington University Hospital. But once he was there, allegedly, he assaulted the guard and spent almost two months on the lam. And we saw this video of him lurking around someone's backyard. You can see the uh, cuffs hanging off his left wrist still. I think he's looking for a place either to get something to eat or something to sleep. don't know. But that video came into us with the, I loved it, the handcuffs. Well, they caught him. But how easy is it when you're an inmate to find an excuse to get out when you're all locked up? And for that, I turn to Paul Wright. 
He spent 17 years behind bars in Washington state for murder and is now the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. I'm so glad you're here. Um, when I heard about Sean Williams headed to the hospital uh, for having apparently tried to take his own life, I wondered if it was just an effort to get to an easier place to escape from. From the inside, does that make sense to you? Sure. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things people try to escape, try to escape from, well, places that are easier to escape from. And typically detention facilities are usually a lot harder to escape from just because of the security measures, the staffing and everything else. But I also don't think we should discount the fact that, um, you know, suicide is a very real problem in American prisons and jails. Uh, mental health treatment is um, ranges from terrible to non-existent to barely adequate. And I think that someone in his position could very well be despondent uh, over both the charges they're facing. And I'd say probably from his perspective, uh, without knowing the details of the charges against him or the evidence against him, but just based on the charges alone, I think there's probably a very real possibility that he's facing the prospect of, uh, if not, he probably won't get life without parole because it doesn't sound like he's killed anyone, but certainly the, he's facing the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison and People often decide, sometimes decide that, you know, they'd rather die than uh, than do that. And, yeah. and like I say, self, that, self-harm is a very real problem in American prisons and jails. And that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. But for the fact that he's so elusive and he's tried so many times to escape, he's not even sure. facing the charges yet for the 52 alleged rapes. It's just a discussion at this point. They're still sort of collating all, all the evidence on that. I do want to ask you this, Paul. What are some of the other excuses that an inmate could make to get off property? Like, it's not just medical, right? There's got to be other ways they can say they have a, a need to not be there. Typically, I think it's important to note that it's the police and uh, jail and prison officials that run the detention facilities. You know, the prisoners are just going to say, hey, I feel like going uh, down to Kmart or Walmart or whatever, and I don't like it here. At the end of the day, it's the it's um, law enforcement that are making those decisions. Um, a lot of times, I mean, some of the more common ones range from, um, you know, that they're cooperating with the police in investigations and they need to be taken outside, uh, outside the detention facility to show the police crime sites or crime scenes or, or whatever. And, you know, this also comes up in the context of, you know, informants and such that are cooperating with police and, you know, it's kind of a reward that are, you know, like, hey, let's go to Burger King uh, and they're going to fast food restaurants and, and things like that. That's actually that somewhat makes sense. common. Actually, yeah. Cooperating well. witnesses often do do the go sees and the, and the show and tells. But so we had a little list up there and it had work detail and transport duty on it as well. I often wonder when I see, you know, inmates on the side of the road doing work detail, cleaning up the side of the road. You know, I, I kind of wonder, well, how do they get that? Um, privilege, because I would think it's a privilege to get out, you know, to be able to be in the great outdoors like that. But you got to be, you got to be real trustworthy. Yeah, as a general rule, the prisoners that are on these outside work details, for the most part, uh, tend to be prisoners doing short sentences or they haven't been convicted of serious crimes. But on the other hand, that's changed because uh, back in the '90s in Florida, uh, when Charlie Crist uh, probably got the name uh, Chain Gang Charlie. And it was his idea to put um, basically violent offenders serving lengthy prison sentences alongside the road, um, doing basically highway cleanup duty and picking up uh, trash and litter and stuff, uh, supposedly as a tough on crime uh, measure. And not surprisingly, there was escapes, there were assaults and 
everything else, and, and that kind of fell by the wayside. So uh, the state of Arizona also tried doing the same thing with uh, death row prisoners, and that lasted for a year, year and a half, until two people were killed in an escape attempt. So, um, yeah, so there have been a lot, just in recent memory, there have been a lot of attempts uh, usually by politicians, generally not by the people actually running the detention facilities, but there's been these attempts by um, politicians to, you know, put uh, basically violent offenders serving lengthy sentences outside of um, prison grounds, doing these types of work details, and pretty much it goes on along until there's some violent incident, a couple of people die, until and then they decide, well, happens. maybe this wasn't yeah. a good idea. Right, which it's was entirely foreseeable idea, and predictable. But- I'd want the prison van job uh, to be the driver. I saw that in Orange is the New Black and thought it'd be the perfect job. Hey, um, so nice of you to do this, Paul Wright. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you. Good night. You bet. And before we go to break, I do want to update you on another case that we just can't quit. Chad Daybell, husband number five of doomsday cult mom uh, Lori Vallow and an alleged triple murderer in his own right. He has to have the death penalty tossed out of his case, doesn't want it. Who does? He argued that since the prosecutors did not seek the death penalty against Lori Vallow, technicality, um, that it shouldn't be on the table for him either. He said death in his case would be, you ready for this, arbitrary, capricious, and disproportionate. But in a 13-page ruling that was handed down yesterday, the judge said, "Niet, <laughs> no, not at all. Those are my words, but basically no. Death stays on the table. And the trial starts April 1st, so basically one big sorry, not sorry. Still to come, this was a crime that sickened us all. Teenagers laughing on video as they rammed a senior citizen on his bike in Las Vegas, killing him. As if it couldn't get worse, the boys accused laughed again in court and then flipped off the victim's widow and daughter several times. And now one of the lawyers wants the charges tossed out because of the media attention, like it's our fault that they made the headlines. So how do you suppose that went over with the judge. I'll explain next. A hit and run murder case that was already one of the most outrageous stories of the year just got even more so. And I know you remember this one. Back in August, a kid named Jesus Ayala, he was 17 at the time, and his buddy, Jameer Keyes, who was 16, filmed themselves, police say, and laughed as they rammed a 64-year-old cyclist from behind, killing him. This happened in Vegas. The car they were in was stolen. The victim was a retired police chief out for a morning ride. It was the second cyclist who'd been run down that morning. First one survived, somehow. Details are clear as day because the suspects recorded it all on their phones and then posted it on social media and shared it at school with their friends. In October, they were indicted for it as adults on charges including murder and attempted murder. And that's when they took their behavior to a whole new level in a Nevada courtroom, snickering and smiling, and then flipping off the victim's widow and her daughter in the courtroom multiple times, according to the pair. There's even uh, this photo of one of their lawyers laughing in the courtroom. It was snapped by the Las Vegas Review Journal. Um, The lawyer, however, not happy with this picture, says that this business here happened before the proceeding started, for what that's worth. Well, now that lawyer says all the media coverage that's been generated because of all this stuff is unfair 
And the charges against his client, Jesus Ayala, should be dropped. Claims that some of the grand jurors who voted to indict might have, and I quote, developed a bias against my client in a place and at a time where I had no power to protect. Bias from us, the media coverage. Here's a thought. If you don't want jurors to think poorly of your clients, maybe refrain from laughing and smiling along with them in the courtroom where the victim's family members are grieving. Maybe ask the murder defendants not to flip off the victims multiple times. Maybe you as a lawyer shouldn't be smiling and laughing with your client either. It's a serious business, no matter how many minutes before the gavel comes down. The lawyer also told the judge that he received death threats over that photo of him smiling with his client. The judge heard all of this and then said, and I'll paraphrase here, you got to be kidding me. Motion rejected. I want to bring in Vanessa Murphy. She's a reporter with News Nation affiliate KLAS in Las Vegas. She's been following this case very closely. Unbelievable. I don't even know if I can, like, quantify a request to dismiss the charges because the media coverage. If OJ can get a fair trial and Casey Anthony can get one, I think these two kids can. Can you tell me a little bit about the reaction to this request uh, from this lawyer? Well, certainly the judge heard from both sides and the prosecutor strongly objected to the public defender's arguments about this. For one, uh, public defender David Westbrook is saying that um, prosecutors should have checked with the grand jury to see how much media coverage they have been exposed to. And I think it's important to note that that video of Andreas Probst being hit, which, as you mentioned, resulted in his death, had already gone viral before the grand jury indictment. So Westbrook is saying that prosecutors should have checked with the grand jury. The prosecutor is saying, look, I'm not going to check with the chief judge or do this every time the media picks up a story. The media picks up many stories. Yeah, we pick up stories, and when they're horrendous, they get more coverage. It's called humanity. Um, I, I, I'm shocked that we have to even discuss this, Vanessa. But a uh, question for you about the death threats. That's serious business. No lawyer um, should ever, ever have to be subjected to that kind of business from anybody. What do we know about the death threats? Did he, did he elaborate? You know, he said that the photo was taken and that it was sort of taken out of context when it was published by other media outlets. Uh, He said that that was about two hours before the case was actually called. He was having a confidential conversation with his client. The picture was taken. He's saying he would never laugh about those allegations. You know, and and oftentimes the case might be assigned for 9 a.m. or 9.30, and it isn't heard until 11, 11.30, because in that courtroom, it's murder case after murder case here in Las Vegas. Boy, that's disturbing to hear. And, you know, seeing that picture of them trying to shield both of their faces, um, interesting I mean, irony of them shielding their faces after they were so thrilled with their handiwork, allegedly, that they posted that murder all over the place and shared it with their friends. And then even after this business of shielding their faces, decided to smirk and smile and laugh and walk through the courtroom and flip off um, the the family members of of the, the 
poor man that uh, allegedly they killed. I want to just play a quick soundbite, Vanessa, of the judge in this case responding to the idea of this, um, you know, the profanity, that the hand gesture, that giving the finger to the, to the victims here in this case. Um, he admitted that he didn't see this happen the first time, but this is what he said. Take a look. Moving forward, that will be the expectation that we will all treat each other with dignity and respect throughout this process. And it's a hard process and it's adversarial, but it doesn't mean that we owe each other anything less. Do both of you understand that? Uh, talked about respect and dignity in the courtroom, uh, the judge said. Um, is this getting real? I just got a couple seconds left. Is this finally getting real for these teenagers? I think so. I was at that last court appearance where they were being pretty sneaky, covering and then giving the family the finger and laughing. It was a different vibe today. Uh, excuse me. It was a different vibe from both of them yesterday in court. Do they understand how serious these allegations are yet? Not sure. Vanessa Murphy, great work, and we sure appreciate you doing this, uh, joining us from KLAS, our uh, affiliate in Las Vegas. We'll see you again soon, I hope. Coming up next, a serial killer's voice from the grave. John Wayne Gacy's been dead for almost 30 years, but time will never take the chill out of the air when you hear him speak, especially words that have never been heard before. After a quick break, more of the Gacy tapes. Recordings from one of America's most prolific serial killers. And I'll talk to the guy who's got them and is willing to share them. Next. I'm about to play a recording of a dead man. Somebody the state of Illinois executed in 1994 for torturing and murdering 33 young men and boys. Name is John Wayne Gacy. That name is synonymous with cruelty and evil. He dressed as a clown but became one of America's most feared serial killers. And now a true crime podcaster with a personal connection to the killer is putting stacks and stacks of Gacy recordings on the air. Interviews with the murderer as he prepared for his trial. Bob Mata is an attorney himself, but he's also the son of the man who defended Gacy way back in 1980. He is the host of the podcast, The Defense diaries and he has been releasing the recordings i can't wait every time you come on the show now because it's just absolutely gripping to hear his twisted mind explaining his killings um can you set up the first clip for me that basically sounds like he's just i mean he just pie in the sky lunatic thinks that all of his killings are justified somehow yeah hey ashley how you doing i love being here so uh first clip the, the easiest way to set it up is when Gacy first got arrested, he gave five confessions over 29 hours, the first 29 hours in custody. So part and parcel of that, when my father gets them, he realizes, and Sam and Maranti both realize that they have to go with the insanity defense. Now, what he's asking Gacy here initially is how many, how many victims or potential victims did you have in this house over the course of the years that you were active and so Gacy gets into that answer, and then we get into, do you think that it was their fault? Was it the victim's fault that they were killed? And the, the answer you hear will shock you. Oh, man. How many people would you say that you brought to your house um, in the past five years, Jen, that you know, are still alive? Roughly? Yeah. Maybe four or five hundred. 
well, why the hell, uh, you know, why are some dead and why are others alive? Because, you know, like, like, like I said before, some of those, the ones that were killed with, 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 with threats of violence or, or uh, blackmail or shit like that. Do you feel that their deaths were their fault? Yes. There's not one of them that didn't, didn't die that I'm aware of that didn't die through their own hands or through their own wrongdoing. Everybody came to my house willingly, understandingly, and knowingly what was going on. Uh, I mean, again, I don't know that it meets the insanity defense, but it is insane. Um, so, Bob, uh, the next clip um, is about Tim McCoy. What's the significance of Tim McCoy? So Tim McCoy was Gacy's first known victim. Uh, he was a 16-year-old kid. He was coming back from Iowa where he had traveled to go uh, with his former uh, friends in their graduating class from high school. He was taking the Greyhound bus. It pit-stopped in Chicago. And Gacy, which is exactly where he picked up his first victims, was around the Greyhound bus station where Tim McCoy happened to be um, the first kid that he picked up. So what you're going to hear here is Gacy describing what happened at the house that night and how Tim McCoy met his fate. Okay, let's roll the tape. I took the night, I think I stabbed him in the chest four or five times. How did you get the knife? Well, I tried to knock him off balance. Yeah, you said you have to knock him off balance. We were holding his arm, and he slashed my wrist. Yeah, because he came down with the knife, and I knocked him over. When I I fell on top of him, when I fell on top of him, the knife came loose from his hand. Grabbed the knife from him, and this is after you had wrestled into the other bedroom. Yes, then he fell down, and you were on top of him. Yes, did you have clothes on then? Did I have clothes on? Yeah, I think just underwear. Did he have clothes on? Yeah, I think he had his Levi's on. Just his pants. No shirt, no shoes or socks. So he wasn't dressed to leave? No. Did he, he, I think he was saying that he was sorry. He was sorry. He didn't mean that he wasn't going to hurt me. Or, I don't know. You stabbed him four or five times? Yeah. Did he appear to die immediately, or was he still alive? Was he breathing, or did he appear to be lifeless after the no, stabbing? I think after the first or second stabbing, all you could hear was the, the guardian of blood and lungs. It's so chilling just to hear that matter-of-fact description of killing that boy. Um, I know it's hard in retrospect, but do you think that your dad and uh, his co-counsel ever got anything sort of worthwhile in terms of trying to establish an insanity defense? It was so tough with him because he just denied remembering anything. Like, like a bulk of the tapes is my father trying to draw out of him the truth, you know, and Gacy just kept playing this game like, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember, you know, and. Probably we'll get to a clip at some point through our travels together. Actually, this clip of where my father really, really goes hard at him, you know, trying to understand, well, John, you gave, you know, the description of five murders to the police in the first 29 hours. And I understand you were on Valium uh, initially, but by the fifth confession, you can't claim that anymore. So, mm. you know, if you think that you're figuring out what our best defense for you is, you're not. 
So it's, it's fascinating stuff, wow. really. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth, our journey together, because it continues. I can't wait to have you back on again and to continue with the tapes. Bob, thank you. By the way, Bob Mata's Defense Diaries. Subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts. Great work. Can't wait till the next time. Uh, coming up next. We're getting closer and closer to Demolition Day at 1122 King Road, the place where four University of Idaho students were murdered last year in their beds. It's due to hit the wrecking ball next week, unless something completely unforeseen comes in to stop that from happening. And something still could. Something that's actually been in place since May of this year. I'm going to lay out that possibility when we come back. eight days left until the biggest piece of evidence in one of the biggest murder trials of the decade is no more. I'm talking about the house on King Road in Moscow, Idaho, where four university students were brutally murdered in November of 2022. In eight short days, that house is going to come down by order of the university that owns it, and with the consent of the state, as well as Brian Koberger's defense team. But as you may know, most of the victims' families are fiercely opposed to that house coming down. And tonight, the attorney for the Gonzalez and the Mogan families um, says there still might be a way to stop it. Carnotal families are also part of that. Um, that attorney says a civil suit, one that would also claim that King wrote house as evidence in a civil case. Well, that might pave the way for an injunction to preserve the house. Months ago, uh, the family's uh, attorney, Shannon Gray, filed what is essentially a placeholder uh, that reserves the right to sue various parties over the horrors that took place uh, in that house. He says the only thing stopping a suit like that going forward is what stops a lot of litigation. It's expensive and money doesn't grow on trees. It takes a lot of money to fight that kind of action against a massive opponent like the University of Idaho. And if you think that the families raked in a whole bunch of money from their GoFundMe pages, they didn't. Uh, we checked it, and there's only three of them that exist. Uh, the grand total for all three families with the GoFundMes is less than $200,000. So unless some kind of big investor or fund ponies up, the chance of the Idaho house being saved is likely just talk. One place where it is being talked about, though, is the University of Idaho Murders Case Discussion Group. Uh, it's one of the biggest true crime pages on Facebook with about 227,000 members. And Christine Cameron and Alina Smith are the administrators, and they are kind enough to be here with me live. It's nice to see both of you again. Thank you for being on. Christine, let me start with you. Um, what are the folks in the uh, case discussion group page saying about this issue? Good evening, Ashley. Thanks for having us. Um, so a lot of people are talking about um, whether the house should be demolished or not. And, you know, when you have a question of this magnitude, of course you're going to have people on, you know, both sides of this argument. And, you know, both sides are compelling. Some say, you know, the prosecution and the defense have gotten what they need, so it should go ahead and be demolished. Others empathize with the college kids and feel that this is awful for the students who attend the university you know, they are having to go in day in and day out and see that painful, constant reminder of that tragic event. And so it needs to go. Others feel that the focus shouldn't be about the university or the college kids there, but instead should be on justice. 
Um, and these people want the house to stay because even if there is that minute possibility of Koberger um, potentially getting away with this um, because evidence was destroyed, it should stay. And there is a real fear that Koberger could get away with this. Um, so for me personally, I think about other high-profile crimes where the juries have been able to go to the scene of the crime. Um, it doesn't happen often, but I'm thinking, you know, O.J. Simpson, uh, the Murdoch murders, um, the Parkland, Florida school shooting. Um, the juries went to these locations. Um, and this is a high-profile case, and it has garnered yeah. worldwide Murdoch. attention. Murdoch was just, you know, a few months ago, uh, several months ago, but there was a jury visit in that as well. And we should just remind everybody that Koberger, uh, while there is very compelling evidence uh, and we don't even know the half of it yet, he is still innocent until proven guilty. So, Alina, let me ask you this. Have the members at all, and I have to be quick here, but have the members at all talked about raising money to help in this legal effort and to help the families mount a civil case? Um, hi, Ashley. We did have one member that suggested to maybe raise money um, for uh, like a loss, like a like a conjecture, conjecture or something like to help raise the money for all of the families to kind of put a stop to it. Um, we do know that uh, one of the families did kind of put something into effect called a tort several months ago, I think in May, which kind of allows them to hold something in place uh, for a civil case. Um, but really, they all need to, like, gather together and put something into effect. And something was presented on our page today by a member. And, you know, they said, hey, you know what? If everybody wants to raise money, we're all here for it. And, you know, let's let's put something into effect. And, wow. you know, they've got eight days, right? I mean, it is it is very last minute. This date is going ahead. And as Brian Enton reported, it doesn't look like this is that same issue as before where they've postponed. I have to leave it there. Christine Cameron and Alina Smith, thank you both. So nice to see you and happy holidays to you and all of your members on the group. You as well. Thank you. All right. Thanks, ladies. All right. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Um, stealing presents from little kids right out from under their tree. If police in California can manage to find out your real name, I have a pretty good idea of where you're going to be spending Christmas. And it is somewhere not exactly known for comfort and joy. That story is next. You're feeling pretty good. You just switched to Verizon 5G Home Internet. It's Verizon. Safe choice, right? Exactly. Maybe you won't mind waiting for everyone to log off so your network signal isn't congested. Oh, I love practicing patience. Maybe when your kids can't video chat grandma, they'll start writing her letters instead. Kim Kim would love that. It'll be great. And maybe the kids won't notice when you cut down their treehouse to get a better signal. Wait, trees block the 5G signal? Yep. It's time for better internet. Fast, reliable internet. Switch to Xfinity. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash Verizon 5G facts. Ma, is this how you feed a hamster? Uh, I think so. Is my homework right? Hmm, I think so. Is, uh, this milk still good? Uh, I think so. When it comes to parenting, sometimes it's okay to think you know. But when it's something as important as your child's car seat, don't just think. No. Double check if your child is in the right seat for their age and size. It'll help protect them in a car crash. Don't just think. No. By visiting NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. What kind of help does the IRS have for identity theft victims? If you suspect you're a victim of tax-related identity theft... 
Go to irs.gov slash identity theft to learn how to prevent potential refund fraud and protect your tax account. At the IRS, combating tax-related identity theft is a top priority, and we are committed to prevention, detection, and assisting victims. And we're working with law enforcement to catch the criminals. For more info, go to irs.gov slash identity theft to learn what the IRS is doing to help protect you. Pass it on. Today my bank made a big mistake, but I forgave them. My server spilled water on me, but I forgave him. My toddler drew lipstick on the wall. Was I ever mad? It got me thinking. I can forgive my bank and my server, but I'm upset with my own kid? I mean, what's most important here? So, tonight, the two of us are doing lipstick art. On paper, forgiveness is in you. Pass it on. From PassItOn.com. Retirement can be scary, but only if you're not prepared. That's why AARP created thisispretirement.org. Because unless you've already retired, you're in pretirement and you still have time to plan. Learn about retirement savings options, potential tax breaks, and how you can build savings over time. Visit thisispretirement.org for free resources to help you customize your action plan and feel the retirement fear disappear. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Thanks for listening to News Nation on the Go. I'm Elizabeth Vargas, delivering fact-based, unbiased news from all sides. Grandpa, look what I got. Wait till you see the bike we got for Jake. It is the coolest thing. Hearing loss happens gradually with age, making it easy to ignore. Yet most older Americans aren't getting their hearing tested. Dad, can you hear me? Untreated hearing loss can keep your loved ones from enjoying what they cherish most. Don't let that happen. Speak up about hearing loss. You'll be glad you did. Brought to you by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. So before you do this or this... Make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. How was your drive to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then, someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Kathleen Eubanks-Ming with the American Academy of Family Physicians. Bullies use power, strength, or popularity to hurt others emotionally or physically. And while you can't be with your child all the time, there are ways you can help. If your child encounters a bully, tell them to get to a safe place and tell an adult. You can also show them how to block online bullies. Teach them they can be more than a bystander and that they can help their peers. For more on bullying, visit FamilyDoctor.org or talk with your family physician. Oh, do you hear that? (laughs) Yes, it's about that time. Cookies to bake, cards to mail, stockings to hang, all while the kids are out of control. And you know who else is out of control? This guy, 2023's real-life Grinch Hall of Shamer. 
He was caught on security cam breaking into a home in Southern California and having his own merry little Christmas under the tree a few days early. The victims, a mom, a dad, and two little kids, three and six years old. We couldn't help but notice that his red sweatshirt has the words, just do it. And to that we say, maybe just don't do it. Maybe just don't steal from little children at Christmas. So my audience, please take a good long look at this man. If you recognize him, call the police in Huntington Beach and get him put on the naughty list for real, if you know what I mean. Mm. Hey, that's it for tonight. Thank you for playing along. As always, we'll see you tomorrow night. And Cuomo's coming up next. Hello, hello. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Wednesday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Got Colorado's decision. Is it going to impact the race? Yep. It's already being weaponized. News Nation political editor Chris Steyerwalt is here to break down the state of play. And the big man here in person, towering over me physically and intellectually with his take on the election and why he thinks the board.